Hartsville, Hartsville, the happening town where art abounds. Hartsville, Hartsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Hartsville, Hartsville, feeling mountain high and inspired in North Carolina. That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers. Oh yeah, Hartsville from Asheville. Welcome to Artsville, the podcast that celebrates American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville and beyond. I am your host with my co-host, the one and only Louise Glickman. Hey, Louise. Hey, Scott. How are you? You know, I didn't introduce myself, did I? I just said, I'm your host, and then I didn't I didn't say my name. Do you think they know That's my a- name? I think they know I think they know you by now. <laughs> I like to leave it open because people like to call me what they want to call me, which, you know, sometimes isn't. This is the friends bar. Everybody knows your name. <laughs> well, and then and everyone has a few choice uh, names for me, I'm sure, uh depending on how I behaved, was I overserved or not? You know, is yeah. really uh, <laughs> right. the basic question. But well, it's so great to see you and hear you over the interwebs here as I call in from our studio in Los Angeles and you call in from our studio in Asheville, North Carolina. That's it. We are global and uh, we are really excited about this podcast. It has been many, many months and moons in the making. So Marshall Price is the curator at the Nasher Museum, which is in Durham, North Carolina. But we are very excited because this is the culmination of a series of features that we have written about Jim McDowell and his space jug and how it has traveled throughout our audience, and how Susan Rosenthal Hirschfield, my good friend, and her husband Michael, made it possible to give it to the Nasher Collection, which has a very, very impressive collection, African-American and other artists of color. So. We have written features about Susan Hirschfield from the collector's side, why she did this. We have done this from the artist's side, Jim McDowell, and how he created this special Red Tails jug. And then we did it from the Nasher side about their collections and how Jim's face jug will add to that collection. So this is a culmination of a three-part series that can be read about at artsvilleusa.com. I love it. It's like three parts. It's like the Holy Trinity. You know, I don't know. It's like we're doing God's work over here, people. This, <laughs> this is fantastic. Well, I'll tell you what. If you want to talk about something that's interesting and spiritual, find out about Jim McDowell and this space jug, because basically he hears the voices of his ancestors who were slaves in Edgefield, and 
then he interprets it through his incredible ceramics. And of course, face jugs is, first of all, it is used also for the burial of ashes because slaves weren't allowed to have graves. So this is where their their ashes were buried. So it delves into not only art, but also funeral customs in the South. And Jim just expresses his stories so beautifully. This is really about the Tuskegee Airmen. That's the subject matter of this particular face, Joe. Yeah, well, tell you what, Jim is, I mean, what an amazing soul he is, an artist. And, you know, we're just so grateful to be able to help celebrate and elevate him and his work and promote, you know, the work he does and the lives uh, that he touches. And so, I don't know, Louise, what do you think? Should we not belabor the point any further and get into this amazing conversation that we've had with uh, Marshall Price, uh, Dr. Marshall Price, by the way, PhD. Let's not forget the, uh, those years and thousands of dollars worth of education. <laughs> and I just love talking to Marshall. He was so generous and uh, lovely. Well, it's more than this. We are trying to do more and more work with trying to explain to people how to buy art, what to look for, what does a museum look for when they collect a piece. So this is a unique opportunity for us to begin a series which we're going to be concentrating on throughout 2023 and 2024, which is how to buy art. So there's lots of opportunity within this one podcast. Let's Indeed. do it. In, let's do it. So without further ado, people, we're going to get going and introduce you in our conversation with the one and only Marshall Price. Marshall Price, welcome to Artsville. Thank you. With such an honor having you, uh, you know, I think you might be our first PhD. <laughs> well, there's a first for, for everything, I guess, right? <laughs> nice answer. Nice answer. Well, you're classing up the show here with your very impressive uh, academic credentials. And I'm, you know, we're just so grateful to have you on Artsville. You know, Artsville is a space, a place we've created to honor and celebrate American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville and beyond. We are here to celebrate and elevate, you know, the stories of artists and their work, you know, really to, you know, amplify and democratize the art world and the craft world. A lot of people maybe don't know about and are excited to learn and people maybe want to come to Asheville and uh, they can't. So we want to bring Asheville to them. You know, we like to say this is the place where we discuss how Asheville became Artsville. So where are you right now? It looks like you're in your office. Are you on campus uh, there at the Nasher uh, Museum right now? Yes. Yes, I am at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University sitting in my office at the moment. So you have so much to talk about. I'm so thrilled you're on the show. You sort of have my dream job. Of course, I have a lowly BA. I don't have a PhD. So they, you know, like they, they probably wouldn't give me the job because I'm not qualified. What a dream job. How did you get there? What was your journey? What, what, you know, how old were you when you realized art would become your life? Well, I majored in art history uh, as an undergraduate in college. My original intent was to go into academia. I went to grad school after graduating. I did a master's degree in art history, 
discovered that academia really wasn't for me. Took a job at that point at the Santa Barbara Museum of Art in California, moved across the country, worked there for several years, and decided that I wanted to go back and, and finish my graduate studies, do a PhD. And so then I moved back to the East Coast and finished my doctorate at, at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. You left Santa Barbara. Like, that's kind of epic because some people I know moved to Santa Barbara and, and never, <laughs> never want to leave. Yeah, maybe I'll retire there. But, you know, I was, uh, I was in my 20s, so right. um, it was great. I enjoyed the time I was there, but I was ready for, the, you know, the next chapter. Yes, yes. No, that's right. When you're young like that, the whole world is your oyster. You want to go see it. And uh, Santa Barbara is not a shabby place to retire. That's for sure. The irony, of course, is my wife and I often talk about retiring to Asheville. So <laughs> you know, it's like, I guess you'll come here or come there because we're, of course, uh, talking to you from our, our studio in Los Angeles. So we're cross country here now talking together. So coming into Nasher as chief curator, I mean, come on, let's just be honest, like a ton of pressure. You know, it's a great job, of course, if you can get it. Certainly not easy money. You know, it's hard work, uh, but a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. You know, did you feel pressured and stressed coming in? Do you feel the weight of the role? How do you, how do you navigate that? And how do, you, how do you manage that? Well, I'd say that, I mean, I've been working as a curator now for about 25 years. I don't see it as pressure. I do take it very seriously. And I do think that, you know, curators have a great amount of responsibility in terms of what they present, how it's interpreted being stewards of collections. So I take that responsibility very seriously and think very carefully about that. But it is a dream job in a lot of ways. I get to work with artists. I get to travel. It's really a passion for me, and it has been since the beginning. So I don't really feel like it's a great deal of pressure necessarily. It's not, you know, like any job out there, it has its stressful moments, but overall, it's really an incredible job. And I feel just incredibly fortunate to have it, really. So when you came into the role, what was the challenge facing you? So I joined the National Museum of Art in 2014 after working at the National Academy of Design in New York for 11 years. And so it was a bit of a change going from a very venerated historical institution that had been around for a century and a half to an institution that is relatively young. I did not come in as the chief curator at the time. My predecessor, Trevor Schoonmaker, is now the director of the Nasher. So I came in with the charge of overseeing certain areas of the collection. My focus is modern and contemporary, but I can, I'm a bit of a generalist in a sense. So I, there are more areas of the collection that I can, I can work with than just modern and contemporary. And I was brought in, I think because my programming past and my area of interest dovetailed nicely with the existing program here at the Nasher that had been established by both Trevor Schoonmaker and Sarah Schroth, who was the then director and former curator here as well. So 
Coming in, you know, one of the kind of macro issues, it seems, for museums and, you know, I don't care if you're the Nasher or, or the Getty or whatever, you know, getting people in the door, getting people to come and engage with art and engage with learning, you know, we're, we're such, cha- it's challenging times, you know, everyone's so distracted, we're drowning in content, your budget is real. How do you think about your programming in terms of bringing people into the space? That's a good question. We're part of Duke University. So because we're embedded within an academic community, it enables us to do certain things and to function in certain ways that I think private museums that do not have that kind of support are unable to do, or maybe it's more challenging to do. So for example, we're able to take on provocative topics with the programming here at the museum. We have a world of expertise at our fingertips with the immense faculty that is here at the university. It's a bonus that we're also in such close proximity to other universities in the area. Chapel Hill is just down the road. North Carolina Central is right in town. Wake Forest is not that far away. So we have these wonderful resources really at our fingertips if we want them. I would say as far as, you know, our audience, we think about our audience as sort of concentric circles, if you will. You know, we serve first and foremost, the Duke University community, the students, the faculty, the staff, but we feel very much that we are Durham's art museum. And so we're very much engaged with the community in Durham and the Triangle. And then we also feel like we can serve the larger community beyond the Triangle, whether it's the Southeast region, the art-loving public nationally, and even internationally. So we take a, a bird's eye view of how we engage with our audiences and how we interact with them. Well, how many programs are running at any one time there at Nasher? We usually do about two rotating exhibitions per year, two special exhibitions, you know, large exhibitions. And then we'll have anywhere from two to six or maybe even more smaller rotating exhibitions during the year. We've got about 10,000 square feet of gallery space here at the museum. And It's divided into three pavilions. One pavilion is used primarily for special exhibitions, rotating shows, loan shows, exhibitions from other institutions that come here. The second pavilion is dedicated primarily to the contemporary collection, where we do rotating exhibitions using that. And then we have a third pavilion, which is dedicated to primarily to historic collections. So we're a pseudo-encyclopedic institution with holdings in antiquity, medieval and renaissance, 17th century to the 19th century, an American collection, an ancient American collection, quite a large ancient American collection, and a historic African collection as well. So all of those collections are on view in our Wilson Pavilion, our collection pavilion. Wonderful. So the 10,000 square feet that you mentioned, that includes the Wilson Pavilion as well? 
Correct. Yes. Got you. Got you. Okay. Wonderful. And then how many, I'm just trying to, you know, understand just some nuts and bolts a little bit. Do you know roughly how many pieces in total that Duke has, Nasher has in its collection? We've got about 14,000 objects in the collection. And the university began collecting in the 1960s with when they purchased a group of antiquities uh, known as the Duke Classical Collection. And a series of collections followed that, uh, an ancient American collection in the early 1970s, historic African collection, a medieval collection. But when the Nasher opened in 2005, it was our founding director's mission that we would focus primarily on modern and contemporary art as an institution. And I think that's because she felt at the time, and rightly so, that that's where we could really make a difference, you know, as an institution. It's challenging to try to go back and collect from the past in a comprehensive way, especially for an institution of our size. So we felt that the biggest difference we could make would be, you know, looking forward primarily. Well, and that's wonderful. And it feels like the art world generally, of course, there's worlds within worlds when you talk about the art world, but, you know, just to keep things simple, but the so-called art world seems to be, you know, right now, you know, looking forward in a lot of ways and, you know, culture, you know, changes and, you know, cultural institutions respond, you know, so for example, right, artists of color, you know, African-American artists, for example, Chicano artists, maybe Asian artists, but, you know, certainly after George Floyd, horrific tragedy that that was, it seemed like there became obviously on some level and perhaps even goes back even to, you know, Obama's portraits and working with, uh, you know, those amazing artists. There seems to be now a premium, you know, on artworks created by BIPOC artists or artists of color within the art world. What is Nasher doing to incorporate artists of color into its modern and contemporary program? The Nasher has been exhibiting artists of color ever since we opened in 2005. It became part of the program due primarily to my predecessor, Trevor Schoonmaker, who instituted it when he came on board. Uh, I believe it was in 2007, 2006, 2007. So it's been part of the fabric of the Nasher program since the beginning. And I think one of the reasons why, or one of the things that that was, you know, uh, nice about me coming on board is that I had some experience with that as well in, in my curatorial past. So uh, it seemed to be a good fit. You know, I think the museum world has been in the middle of a reckoning now for a number of years. And you're right that a lot of institutions have been scrambling or working toward making up for past practices of exclusion. And that's really important. I mean, it's been overdue for a long time and I hope that it continues. I mean, I'm optimistic that it will, but the museum world experienced a similar reckoning back in the early 1970s. And, you know, was... It didn't move the needle a whole lot back then because we're still here having the same conversations, but I'm optimistic that 
this second reckoning is hopefully going to make a difference. Yeah. And, you know, obviously so much of it is, well, we use this word a lot, right? Systemic, you know, the, the way the model works sometimes, you know, it's like depending on where the money's coming from. <laughs> yeah. Right. You may have to, to go left when you wanted to go right, or you may have to go right when you wanted to go left because, oh, by the way, that was the contingency of the million dollar endowment <laughs> or whatever. Right. I mean, I think, you know, with some institutions, yes, I'm sure they're hamstrung to some degree by their financial supporters. One of the great things about the Nasher is that, you know, while we are part of Duke University, we have a lot of autonomy from the university. And so we are able to craft our own program and we're free from those types of situations where you may have a board member or financial supporter who very much wants to see you know, some type of program happen at the museum. Uh, we are able to craft our program from the inside without any real pressure from the outside. Now, I will say that does come with a lot of responsibility too. You know, so we think very carefully about the program that we present here at the museum and work with community members. Obviously, we do work with the academic community too here at the university. But programmatically, we are autonomous, which is, it's great. Oh, that's lovely. That's freedom right there, right? I mean, and that's what, I know there are other directors very envious of you in that case. So that's fantastic. Well, you know, you've sort of been referencing your collection and you, I think you've referenced some pieces that maybe were donated or what have you. And I understand that you recently acquired I guess, as a gift from uh, Susan Rosenthal and her husband, Michael uh, Hirschfeld, that you've recently acquired a Red Tails face jug created by Jim McDowell. And Jim's been on the show uh, in the Artsville podcast. What an amazing human being he is, force of nature, really. Take us back and tell us the story of this acquisition and what you want to program around it. Sure. First of all, I'll say that Susan and Michael have been great supporters of the museum for a number of years. I consider them close friends. They are based here in Durham. And it was really Susan who brought Jim's work to my attention. It was not known to me before Susan mentioned it. And Susan said, you know, if, if you like this work and you think it, it's a good fit for the institution, we would be happy to support an acquisition. And and so that's what they've done. I went out to visit with Jim. We had a Zoom introduction back in the fall. And then in December, Jim said, well, we're going to be opening the kiln, you know, in early December, late November, early December. So I said, well, why don't I come out when the kiln is open and we can, you know, maybe make a selection for the Nasher's collection. Uh, he liked that idea, so I took my whole family out there, well, the three of us, <laughs> out to Asheville, and we had a, such a wonderful time with Jim in his studio, looking at his works. Even my four-year-old daughter was just completely entranced with Jim and his work. They were, both Jim and his wife, Jan, were so sweet to her. You know, the thing about Jim's work that is just really, I mean, amazing. And, and you don't really get that sense unless you go and visit him and you're surrounded by 
dozens and dozens of these face jugs and objects is that he creates these worlds. You know, every object has its own story, its own narrative, but they're all linked. So there's this through line of this history that goes back to the 19th century. It goes back to the old potters of Edgefield, South Carolina. It goes back to potters like David Drake, who was enslaved and wrote on his pots. He, he could read and write and he write onto his pots, which, you know, in the 1840s and 50s was illegal. So it was an incredible experience for me. So we went to visit with Jim and Jan and after spending you know, several hours there, we settled on one work that I felt not only represented Jim and his practice really well, but also fit into the collection here at the Nasher because of the story that it tells. And the piece that we selected, as you mentioned, Scott, is titled Red Tales. And it's a, a monument or an homage to the Tuskegee Airmen who fought during World War II and painted the tails of their airplanes red to identify them as, as themselves as black aviators. The piece itself is specifically an homage to Colonel Charles Chief Anderson, who is widely considered as the father of black aviation. So, you know, I felt that it not only told this wonderful story about American history, American black history, from the time of the mid 20th century and World War II and its important contribution to the Allies during the fight against the Axis, but it also fits within the collection here because of Jim's own history. Jim, as you know, calls himself the Black Potter. He very much sees himself in the lineage of the old Edgefield Potters and David Drake. And so it just dovetails so well with the work that we have here at the museum. Well, thank you for that. And, you know, it's interesting. You, of course, are referencing, you know, the amazing David Drake, um, who, by the way, we should just say for people, I guess, as, uh, as I understand, there's a there's a show at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston right now featuring his work, Hear Me Now, The Black Potters of Old Edgefield, South Carolina. I just read about, uh, apparently it's an awesome show. So if you're in the Boston area, people get, get over there. But anyway, so we have Jim at the Nasher now. And it clearly sounds like a, a beautifully serendipitous kind of organic kind of fit, you know, for him, for you, in terms of bringing his work into the collection. Tell us how people can come and enjoy Jim's work there at the Nasher. Jim's work is going to be on view uh, beginning in June. It will be included in an exhibition called Love and Anarchy. I'm very excited to be including it in the installation. And you know, when an artist comes into the collection here at the Nasher, typically what happens is the work will be cataloged, so it will be measured, it will be photographed, it will go into our collection database, and then is uploaded to our online collection database, which is accessible to anyone out there in the public. Anyone can go online, visit the Nasher Museum website, and go to our eMuseum page and see 
almost all of the 14,000 objects that are in the collection. Most things are photographed that we have in the collection. Not everything, but most. And certainly with new acquisitions, it's a priority to get them up online, have them be accessible to the public, you know, even if they're not physically on view in the gallery space. So there are several ways that folks can come and, and see work in the collection here. So what do you think this acquisition will mean for Jim's career? Well, I mean, I hope it's a force multiplier for him. <laughs> I mean, we I love bringing in an object that may in some circles be considered a quote unquote craft object and not necessarily by some to be considered quote unquote fine art. You know, I think those boundaries have become increasingly blurred over the years, deservedly so. And, you know, why can't an object that has historically been thought of, of as craft be shown in a fine art context? So, you know, I hope it may bring Jim some more notoriety, although he seems to be doing very well on his own without the help of the Nasher Museum lately. Yeah. And maybe it'll get Jim to Durham more, more often than before. Well, and obviously we, we're counting on it raising the profile of the Nasher itself, uh, by the way. <laughs> so it, it works both ways. Yeah, yeah. It's a win-win. It's a win-win. It's a win-win. So I have to ask, you know, when you think about Jim's work and you think about, you know, the importance that these face pots have culturally and historically within the African-American community, certainly in the, I guess, Southeastern, you know, U.S., so to speak, you know, I can't help but think about, you know, here we go, the children, right? The Thinking about the children, making sure that children understand the history and the importance and the significance of these objects and in the history and what they mean. So when you think about how the Nasher connects with children and how the Nasher can help educate kids around this very important historical truth, what are some of your plans for youth programming? We have an extensive education department here at the museum. Our K-12 programs are wildly popular. It's a question probably better asked to our director of education, but I do know that from September to May or early June, there is a constant stream of school kids from preschool. My daughter has visited with her preschool all the way up through high school. And then, of course, college groups come as well. You know, that was in some way in the back of my mind when we decided that this piece by Jim was the right one for the museum, because, you know, I could envision a young child looking at that and relating to it or being curious by, you know, its face, its form, its clay. This is a material that children, you know, can kind of understand and wanting to know more. And because it has that narrative about you know the Tuskegee Airmen and black black aviators during World War II it's such an opportunity pedagogically speaking you know to talk about this history so i think this piece is going to have resonance with young and old alike i really do that's not always true you know with the work when you bring it in well seeing it in your own daughter's face right in his studio like that was proof right that his work resonates with the youngins you know 
Yes. And I'm thinking now maybe I should bring her on all of my studio visits. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Hey, the kids know. They're very clear. I know from my own kids. They speak the truth. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Marshall, I am so grateful that you've taken time out of your busy schedule to come on to Artsville and help us understand the amazing work that you're doing there and the important programs. And of course, the gift of, of Susan and Michael and, you know, the acquisition of Jim McDowell's Red Tail Face Jug and what that means for your programming moving forward. And, you know, so thank you for, for taking the time to come on. We know how busy you are. And, you know, tell all our listeners real quick where they just simply like where they can find the collection online and follow you, I guess, you know, on Instagram. I mean, where can people find you online? Sure, sure. The museum's website is nasher.duke.edu. That's the best place to visit, to see the collection, to see the programming we've got going on. Then Nasher also has an Instagram handle. I believe it's just nasher.edu, at nasher.edu. I'm on Instagram at mnormanprice. And yeah, I think those are good places to find us. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for coming on. Godspeed, my friend. You're doing important work there at the Nasher. They're lucky to have you. Do you think, uh, what do you think? You're going to, are you going to retire there, Duke? Or are you, <laughs> are you going to come back to Santa Barbara and open up a gallery someday? Probably not come back to Santa Barbara anytime soon. I do visit though. I do visit, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. The last nine years have treated me pretty pretty well here. So. Yeah. You seem very happy. You have a nice happy glow about you. So uh, <laughs> that's a good, that's a good sign. That's a good sign. Well, Marshall, we'll sign off here. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks again. And uh, please come back. We'd love to talk again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to you. And thank you to Louise Glickman as well. You're doing a great job. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Artsville podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review and share it with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Artsville is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles in partnership with Sand Hill Artist Collective in Asheville, North Carolina. Our theme music was created by Dan Ubik and his team at Danube Productions. Artsville is edited by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Artsville. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville and beyond. Artsville, Artsville, the happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville. Hartsville, feeling mountain high and inspiring North Carolina. That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers. Oh yeah, Hartsville from Asheville.